Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tom Parada, whose latest novel is Mrs. Fletcher. Tom Parada is the author of six other novels and two collections among those novels, The Leftovers, Little Children, Election. Little Children and Election became well-known, successful films, Oscar-nominated. The Leftovers just completed three seasons on HBO. Mrs. Fletcher is called a satire, and I guess at the beginning it's kind of amusing, but what it really is is a character-driven novel about the empty nest syndrome, or at least it starts with that. And I understand that's sort of the origin of the book. Yeah, and I'll just start by saying I never think of myself as a satirist. It's it's a word that, that I've been stuck with, probably because the movie Election was such a brilliant satire. That my book, I think, was more low-key and more uh, in the realm of psychological realism. So I'll, I'll just say that. It's a comic novel, for the most part, though it deals with serious subjects. And, you know, my kids, my oldest is graduated from college and... My uh, younger son is uh, in the middle of college, so it's just a time of life that I've been going through, and it's led me to think about what it means when your parenting career is over and you get a chance to kind of redefine yourself as an adult. And I I chose to write about a woman whose empty nest is really empty. She's divorced, and she has one son, and she takes him off to college, and she goes home, and there she is alone with herself, and she's trying to figure out what now? Why did you choose to have a female protagonist? That's one of those mysterious things. When I was younger, I was considered like a guy writer. You know, Bad Haircut, my first book, is all about male friendship. And I wrote a book called The Wishbones about guys who play in a wedding band and their rock and roll dreams. And more recently, I've been writing about women of roughly my age, my generation. I've been really fascinated with the various ways that women I know have tried to invent their lives. It, you know, they were the first generation that really grew up with the promise of feminism and then watched their sort of ideals crash into the realities of the workplace and family life. And, you know, I think it's been just a really interesting social experiment that's been going on over the course of my adulthood. And it seems that, you know, obviously men have been displaced by it as well, but I've for some reason become fascinated with the way that that women are living their lives. For a fiction writer, you know, we just have to believe that we can imagine our characters and convince our readers to to take them seriously. And there is some skepticism in the culture right now about the limits of imagination and, you know, who has the right to own who else's experience. And I totally understand that. My sense as a writer is you can imagine anything But it's up to the reader to say if you get away with it. What I've noticed is in a lot of women writers, there's a tendency to focus more on internal dialogues concerning how they're thinking, whereas with men, it's it's flatter. And yet you get into these characters in a way that I've rarely seen. 
But then again, it's probably true of all your characters. I never distinguish in, in my own mind, uh, okay, I'm writing a woman now, I need to proceed in this way. It's always the same act of sort of empathetic imagination where I just feel like I need some, some hook, some way to feel that I know this character, that I can see some part of myself you know, enacted in, in their lives. And, and once I have that little bit, and I think it's something that actors do as well, Sometimes a little gesture that might open up a character to an actor or uh, some piece of a backstory. I don't really have a method for it, but I just try and write the character, and eventually I'll feel like, oh, I know this person now, or I'm starting to know this person. And at that point, they begin to act in a way because it's the only way they can act. Yeah, and it's an exciting moment for the writer because it stops becoming that work, or, or you're not seeing somebody through a pane of glass. You know, it feels like you're... You're there with them. The book starts from third person Eve's perspective, Eve Fletcher's perspective. I understand that originally you thought you might write the whole book from her perspective. Yeah, I had read a book called Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferrante. It wasn't one of those Neapolitan books, but it was a very short, intense novel about a woman whose husband leaves her, and she just goes crazy over the course of a few days. And it was one of those kind of novella-length stories that felt very claustrophobic and intense, and I, I just thought, boy, there's something really pure about a book like that, and, you know, I really like this sort of shorter form, and I, that was where I started, and I wrote the first chapter where Eve drops her son off at college and, and goes home, and, and that could have led to the book I was imagining, but then I immediately thought, oh, I want to know what her son's doing in college. So I gave up my plan very, very quickly. I think mostly for writers, plans are a way to get started. So there was absolutely no outline here. You just started writing and wanted to see where it went? Yeah, usually I start with a broad situation rather than a story that has multiple steps to it. So, for instance, the leftovers, people are gone. It looks like the rapture. It's not the rapture. Let's take it from there. Exactly. So I didn't even know you know, say about the guilty remnant till I started writing. That goes for, for all my books. I, I need just enough to get started. I don't want to know too much. My imagination doesn't work that way anyway. I don't see uh, too far down the road. Do you, do you hit a, a brick wall sometimes then? Of course. Often at the beginning where I hit, hit the brick wall because I know only so much. And then I have to either try and start it somewhere else or... Uh, come at it from a different angle. I don't think I've ever started a novel, hit a brick wall, and then completely stopped. I just have to suffer through that period of, you know, I've burned up the starter fuel. Um, I'm going to have to find some gasoline somewhere. At that point, in this case, you were able to just simply say, I want to know what Brendan the Sun is doing. Is that how the other voices all emerged? You finish a chapter and you go, you know, I'm curious, what is Amber thinking now? Uh, so sometimes it works like that. Sometimes uh, I've introduced a character in passing. The character has interacted with Eve the way Amanda does or Amber with, with Brendan. And then I'll think, oh, I want to know them better because I realize that they're going to start to play an important role in the story. Other times I'll sort of sense that a character is going to be important and maybe preemptively introduce them. But I think in all these cases, the characters were introduced and that was my first glimpse of them. And then I had a later moment when it seemed like uh, there was time within the story, I would, I would stop and say, okay, let's, let's see Amanda. Let's get to know her before Eve has a sort of 
interesting encounter with her. Is that the, the case of this, um, an African-American boyfriend of the transsexual character, Margot, who for one paragraph, one paragraph, we look through his head and then not at all? Yeah. Is it one paragraph? I think it might be a couple of paragraphs. But, but nonetheless, yeah, I think there were a number of characters who I think that in a bigger, more expansive book, I could have spent some time with. In this case, you know, there's a, a tension between giving every character their due and keeping the story moving. So Dumel is the character you were referring to. And there's a sort of a big scene where a bunch of characters are at a party. And I wanted to go into everybody's head in the party. So he got his moment. And it was brief. But, you know, it was fun to spend a little time with him. So as the book develops, you're just following the characters, seeing where they're going to go, determining what they're going to do. Some stuff you, I assume you knew in advance, say, how Brendan, the son, might react with his brand-new girlfriend. Without going into spoilers with the plot, very early on, you know, I think the reader gets a sense that Brendan is a certain kind of guy. He's like a, a frat guy. He's a lacrosse player. He can be a little thoughtless when it comes to women. He's going off to college, and, you know, Eve thinks, I need to have a talk with him about respecting women. And his academic advisor, the first time that they meet, says, uh, you know about consent, right? And I think there's a little ominous cloud over Brendan when it comes to sex. And so I knew that somehow I was going to have to play out that story. I didn't know exactly how I was going to play it out, but I understood the ballpark that he was playing in. So the moment the event occurs with Amber, that moment, is that a surprise to you in some respects? So there's a fateful sexual encounter that he has. It was probably the hardest part of the book to write because, you know, I was very interested in the fact that my characters were operating at a time when there's a very heated public discussion about sexual assault in college. I understand that there are cases that are totally clear-cut. There are men who rape and assault women and get away with it. I also understand from doing a lot of reading that so many of these encounters kind of fall into a weird gray area. People are drunk or people aren't stating their desires clearly. And I just had to decide, is this a gray area story? Is this a clear-cut story? I won't say too much more about it. I'll leave it to the readers. But there were sort of moral and ethical and philosophical issues that I knew that I was about to engage with. One of the main elements of the plot, Tom Parada, concerns porn and its relationship to the various characters and something called MILF, which we can't say on the air what exactly it is, but uh, Google it. It's an acronym. It's an acronym. Did you actually look at those porn sites to see what Eve was looking at? Absolutely. You know, I have to say that I have no interest in sort of, you know, professionally produced porn. But one of the phenomena that's come with, you know, the advent of first was, I guess, just cheap video cameras, but then the Internet and now just iPhones and cameras. It's a sort of every person has the potential to be a pornographer now. Um, and many people are availing themselves of that potential. And all my life I've been curious about sex, and I've had this feeling of, like, because I grew up Catholic, we didn't talk about sex. It was always this sort of huge secret thing. 
I think everybody's curious about it. And, you know, how do we know how to have sex? Well, we see it on the movies. We, you know, you know, we listen to songs, whatever it is. We take sex education classes if we're lucky, but a lot of us don't get those or they're just boring and don't get us anywhere. It's this big secret. It's the big secret. Suddenly we have this technology and all these people are saying, well, here's how I do it. Once I was at a uh, talk at the Boston Book Festival and it was about technology and sex and, and you know, Andre Debus III, a wonderful writer, was taking a very hard line. Like he thought all this technology was bad in all sorts of ways, but he was especially worried about the ways that it victimized young women, you know, with revenge porn or pictures being traded around. And I got all that. But uh, Nicholson Baker was there, and he'd just written a book called House of Holes, which is this crazy kind of Rothian book about sex. And he just said, you know, I've learned so much about human nature from watching porn. I kind of understood what he meant. I feel like there's this new body of information. You know, sometimes it's just pure statistics, like there's just a big article about what people actually look for in porn and the way that porn trends come and go and the way that porn actually has changed people's sexual behaviors. But there's also just something about getting a peek into this thing that until quite recently we weren't allowed to look at, which was how our neighbors are having sex. Well, the other element there is that people are very judgmental. And I guess in writing a book like this, you have to step back and say, I am not going to judge Eve. I'm not going to judge Amanda. I'm not going to judge Brendan. I'm not going to judge Amber. How hard is it for you to just sit back and kind of go, well, no, I'm not going to judge them? I guess as a novelist, I don't understand what good it would be to judge my characters. I want to know them, and I want to know how they explain themselves to themselves. I think they've all internalized the voices of the people who might be judging them. Like Eve watches porn. She sort of stumbles into it. She doesn't think of herself as a person who likes porn. So she's a little startled to find that she's interested. And she says, you know, if my son, if I found this porn on my son's computer, I would be horrified. Yet there she is looking at it night after night, partly because she's lonely, but also because this porn that features women in their 30s and 40s, you know, women her age, is sort of suggesting to her that it's not over. She can still be a sexual person, that part of this porn is a celebration of these women's bodies, which are not perfect by the uh, pretty harsh standards of Hollywood or, you know, an American high school or whatever it is, just American culture in general. So one of the things that this porn does, even though she, some part of her feels like she should disapprove because she grew up as a feminist and understands all the arguments against it, she's finding something potentially liberating or, or revelatory in there. You said in an interview with NPR, I am very interested in these moments when people do things contrary to their deepest principles or sense of right and wrong. These are the moments we find out who we are. And Eve is kind of like that. Most of the characters in most of your books are like yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's right where I go. You know, I think if there is such a thing as a defined self or character, there's got to be a frontier where, you know, I won't do that or I, I will do that becomes the thing that defines you. You know, here we are and we're talking just a few days after this horrible, you know, neo-Nazi riot in, in Charlottesville. And already, you know, there have been pictures of certain of these neo-Nazi, you know, white supremacist guys put on the internet and people are, you know, shaming them. And they're going like, 
they're trying to say like, I am not a racist. You know, it's like, there you are, dude, you're standing there with a bunch of racists, you know, with uh, white supremacist logo on your shirt. You're a racist. <laughs> you know, I just I think it's just that funny thing that sometimes people want in their minds to let themselves off the hook. I'm not making any kind of equivalency there, but just that idea of not owning who you are. We see it where Trump doesn't own who he is and then he does. And when he does own who he is, we're horrified. Yeah, it's, it's so strange, right? It, ma it makes him a very frustrating politician to deal with because sometimes it seems he has no self at all, and then other times it seems like he has a very strong, uh, revolting self. You know, trying to bring a book which has no politics on the surface into a discussion where a world right now where politics has almost subsumed everything else I assume you wrote Mrs. Fletcher during the period of the uh, election. You know, so the book is set in 2014, and so I felt like I was being fairly up to date. You know, I was writing it in some way and reacting in real time. There's a chapter, for instance, that deals with protests after the Ferguson shooting. You know, the book is steeped in this discussion of gender that was really bursting into the mainstream during that period. But what's happened now in, in the publication in the age of Trump is that you know, I look back at the book and I say, yeah, you know, a lot of these problems are that I'm dealing with in the book are problems that still exist in our society, but they're happening at a time when, you know, we had a president who was thoughtful, competent, you know, a decent human being and not an apologist for neo-Nazis. And it, the book already has this kind of glow of nostalgia on it just because it was happening before this sort of, you know, toxic moment that we have entered into. Do you fear that, that it suddenly gets dated? Is it not something that you think about? I would think just in our discussion that if I choose to rerun this part of the interview a year from now, hopefully it will be dated. Somebody asked me that. There is a, a sense in Mrs. Fletcher because technology is so much at the fore. And, you know, there's a scene where a, a woman has a, a Tinder date. There's a scene where there's a, you know, dirty Skyping session, you know. There's some texting, erotic texting. There's a lot of porn. But my sense is that every story is time-bound. I mean, Moby Dick is happening at this mo moment when people needed whale oil. There are all these details about whaling in that book that at the time were, was just realism, but now feels like this incredible body of historical information because most of us don't know a lot about whaling, but if we read Moby Dick, we're forced to learn the entire industry. You can't be in control of that. You read Gatsby, and it's so steeped in that moment in the 20s, which was a fleeting moment. You know, it ended a few years later when the Depression came. And, uh, you know, I just feel like part of the novelist's job is to just be true to the moment that you're writing about. And if the story is good and memorable, all that will just become interesting historical information. It's more than that. I mean, I, I did an interview in 1990 with Gore Vidal and aired it recently, and there are elements there where maybe they glossed over then, but suddenly now, 20-odd years later, they have a different resonance, and they change. Right, and the fact that certain stories can only be told at certain times is like Portnoy's complaint is it just a document of the early sexual revolution. A writer could not have written that. It could not, you know, have written There wouldn't have been an audience that tolerated it, but when it seemed so liberating at that moment because suddenly the lid was, was taken off. But we can talk about almost any book that we can think of. You know, there are some writers who do try and get outside of time 
you know, like Kafka is in some dreamscape, and that's something else. But most realistic writers are just time-bound, and we just happen to be living in a period where things are changing really fast. So even novels I wrote 10 years ago didn't have texting. It was, was just a different technological playing field. But of course, when we go back to those novels, there was a certain freedom in that people didn't have phones. I mean, you know, a lot of people want to write about the past now because that reality opens the door to secrets that don't exist anymore. That's right. That's right. I, I remember I was reading The Hardy Boys to my son years ago, and I just kept thinking, like, every one of these stories would be impossible if they had a cell phone because it's always like Joe and Frank see that there's a crime happening in some deserted house, and they don't have time to drive back to town and get the cops. <laughs> if only they had a cell phone. You have a transgender character in Mrs. Fletcher. Was that character always going to be there? As I said before, I was trying to react to the social conversation that was happening 2014, 2015, 2016. Identity politics. Um, the bathroom story. Yeah, the bathroom sexual behavior in college. But all this, this stuff about gender identity was very much a part of the book. I knew that Eve was going to take a night school class, and it just seemed you know, really intriguing to have her professor be a, a transgender woman who was, you know, I think one of the characters says, well, it's one thing to say that, you know, gender is socially constructed and another thing to, you know, have a professor who's done construction work. <laughs> when I speak with a number of authors, I ask them if there's any character who they just started writing and suddenly it was going to be almost a throwaway, but the character kind of took over. Did that happen to anybody here? Like Julian... I mean, Julian is a very interesting character. I would say, you know, Margot, the transgender professor, gets she gives a whole whole lecture on her life story in, in the book. And so, you know, that was a real writing challenge for me because to, I mean, just imagine that. Say to yourself, okay, I have a character, and the character is going to give a biographical presentation. So I really had to dig deep into her history and find some anecdotes that would kind of define her as a character. And it turned out to be a pretty fun writing experience. How long did it take you to figure out how the book was going to end? You know what happened? That ending, which I won't spoil now, existed for a while. And I turned in a draft uh, to my publisher that was significantly shorter, meaning the time jump to the end was bigger. And the, the real editorial response I got from for my editor was that that time jump was too violent and that I had to fill in some of that space. So, so really the, the rewriting wasn't toward changing the end but, but was in saying what happened in the spring, not just jumping from the fall, one fall to the next fall, but filling in what happened in the spring in between. Tom Parada, I'd like to talk a little bit about your work in media and particularly the leftovers, which before we went on the air, you said, you know, not that many people watched it, but the ones who did, like my sister, for example, were absolutely hooked by it. Did Damon Lindelof approach you about it? How did that um, happen? So I've had an unusual amount of good luck in getting my books turned into film. So Election was made into a great film by Alexander Payne. It's become an iconic movie. And Little Children, I co-wrote the script with Todd Field, and I think that's a wonderful movie, too. Little Children, Todd and I wrote a long script, and we ended up having to lose a whole subplot just to get the movie down to feature film size. And I remember uh, feeling just a certain frustration about that. And then at the same time, I was watching all these amazing long-form TV shows that just seemed to have 
so much room to tell stories and to focus in on characters in great detail. And I just thought, why wouldn't I move into that section of, of uh, film and TV? Why, why wouldn't I go for a long-form drama rather than a feature film? Uh, and The Leftovers felt even bigger than Little Children because it has this sort of big speculative idea about this rapture-like event. And it affects the whole world, and so there are all kinds of ways you could go telling that story. I went to HBO with the book and said I'd like to do this as a show, and they saw the potential in it, and we had some meetings, and they're like, who do you want? For they said to me, do you want to be the showrunner? I said, no, I don't know how to run a TV show. That's not who I am, so, but I would like to be a writer on the show. And so we started to talk about who would we like to have as a showrunner, and it just so happened that my son and I were watching Lost at the time, and I was just so impressed by the boldness of the storytelling on, on that show. So I mentioned Damon, and uh, the HBO executive, Michael Ellenberg, had also just worked with Damon on the movie Prometheus, and he's like, Damon is great. So, you know, we had a meeting in the minds, and we talked to him, and that was that. It was, you know, it was like the same with Alexander Payne in Election. Like, sometimes it's, a, it's really hard to find the right people to collaborate with, and other right. times it just works. Once you find them... I mean, was the original idea to just have a mini-series of the book, or how did that work? You know, I said I wanted to do it as a series rather than a mini-series, and I think Damon was very reacted very positively to that because anybody who's watched the show knows that the book and the show are, are really two distinct things. I mean, they, they overlap. Some of the, you know, the main characters are the same. Some of the setting is the same. But even in season one, when we were adapting the book more specifically, there were new characters. There was a kind of a different tone. I mean, Damon really wanted to bring his own material and his own vision into it. And so the idea that it... I wonder if he would have done it if we just said, it. well, okay, this is just a straight-up adaptation of the book for six or eight episodes. I don't know that that would have interested him in the way that an ongoing series that allowed him kind of more room to play. The second season takes place in a different environment. Was that in the back of your mind that each season would? And how many seasons were you thinking of? It wound up going three. That part of it is really impossible to plan because, you know, HBO, they don't guarantee you two seasons. You know, they make an order like we're, we're going to do a season of the show. And then at some point they'll say, OK, yeah, we want to order another one. So it was really difficult for us to plan down the road. And we understood that at some point we were going to run out of the book. I don't think I understood we were going to run out of the book so quickly. We could have used two seasons to treat the story in a different way. There was a three-year leap between the event that triggers the story and the beginning of the book. But I thought, well, there is room in that three-year period. Also, you could go back in time you know, right. as well as forward. But we ended up using up the book in the first season. And so we, it, it was a very interesting moment for us because I just assumed we were going to pick up where we left off and Damon really wanted to make a clean break and he raised the idea of, of moving elsewhere. He also wanted a different look. Uh, season one was filmed outside of New York and you know it has a kind of ordinary quality that I like because it, it that ordinary quality of the visual world I think made the weirdness stand out in a certain way but he also wanted just a bigger palette and he was very interested in the American Southwest. And we had come up with a storyline about a town where nobody had disappeared that had become a sort of uh, New Jerusalem but slash theme park. <laughs> it was supposed to be just an episode in season one, and we could never find a place for it. And then we realized, oh, that, that's, such a, that's another big idea. 
There could be a whole story around that. Once we found that, I think the show really started to define itself as an exploration of religion in the making. And season three? Season three starts in the miracle Texas where season two was, but it jumps to Australia. Isn't there also a three-year jump too? Uh, yes, yeah, because because we were playing off of the biblical idea of the tribulation, that seven-year period after the rapture before Jesus' return, and the, the idea that, that on the seventh end, people just got it in their heads in the way that you know, religious mania sometimes takes over cultures that that the seven-year anniversary was going to be the fateful moment. And so we're, you know, playing off of that, that approaching as a kind of ticking clock. Did you know at that point that that would be the last season then? Yeah, so we did season one, and I think if I can speak from like an analytical distance, I think the early reviews were mixed of the show because it was so dark. And I think about midway through season one, we started to figure out what The Leftovers was, how it should really be. And I think the second half of season one was very good, and the critics who stuck with us started to notice that, boy, this show doesn't feel like anything else, and it's, it's really interesting. And HBO, I think, decided, okay, let's go back for another, another season. And what happened in season two was critics really embraced the show. It's a, you know, it was a huge critical hit, and there was a particular one episode where uh, our main character, Kevin Garvey, played by Justin Theroux, kind of visit some other world that's like the world of the dead or else a kind of a fever dream that he's having that a lot of people just said, that's the best episode of TV of this past year in memory, you know. But that second year, for whatever reason, our audience just kind of declined. And, and I think it was tough on HBO because they're looking at a show that was, on the one hand, being critically celebrated and on the other hand just wasn't, you know, getting the eyeballs that they would like for an expensive drama. And they were good enough to say, we'll give you one more season, but that's it. And that was kind of a gift. You know, we knew we had to end the show and we were able to um, work very deliberately toward the end. When I spoke with Richard Price, he said season four of The Wire was different than anything he'd ever seen because HBO had nothing else to run. They just said, go with it. And the suits didn't interfere. And of course, it turned out to be one of the best single seasons in the history of television. For The Leftovers, did they pretty much leave you alone then for season three? Yeah, they really did. Season one, I, I think we needed some help. You know, some shows come out and that people know what they are, especially genre shows. You know, they know what the rules are. We didn't know the rules. And so HBO was much more involved, but not in an, an oppressive way. I think they were really trying to be creatively helpful. And once the show found its voice, they really stepped back. And, you know, they obviously had concerns about budget. And there were moments when they would say, you know, something's not working here or whatever. But by season three, it was a real relationship of trust. And the show got wilder and wilder in season three. But it was working. You know, I think we had a controlled wildness. Did actors like Justin Theroux, did they come into the writer's room and give you any guidance on that, or you just sent them the script? Well, you know, when you're in production, it's a, it's all on the fly. You know, they're out on set in Austin or in Australia, and we're emailing them scripts. And so, you know, they'll have some concerns, but for the most part, our actors were also just really came to trust us. You know, I speak as somebody who created the show, you know, but, and was one of the writers, but these scripts are really amazing. Damon was the showrunner, and he was always the person who did the last rewrite. And, and there's a certain kind of voice in these scripts that is sort of uh, 
it's kind of a meta commentary. There are lots of comic book exclamation points and stuff. They're really fun to read. And for the most part, I think, even when the actors didn't exactly know what was going on, they really trusted the writers. And the politics of it, I guess that you were trying to explore religion, so of course politics came in. You were not thinking in terms of metaphors for what's really going on, or were you? This is one of the powers of any kind of speculative story. By taking an event like the rapture, which is steeped in a kind of evangelical Christian theology, but, but then draining out the religious meaning from it, it wasn't a polemical show. It was really about everybody was confused, even the Christian characters. They're like, is that the rapture? The secular people are going, was that the rapture? What was it? And so it really became about religious activity and faith as a response to the unknowable. So I think that we were dealing with really messy and, and interesting questions about religion, but not in a polemical way because they were removed from, I think, our, our everyday political context. Were you all pretty much on the same page politically in the writer's room? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and you know, so, so that some people would say with the third season that they thought that we were reacting because by the time the show came out, you know, Trump was was in office. But all the writing had happened beforehand, and, and we were watching the same election that everybody else was, where up until, you know, that Comey's second email, you know, reopening of that investigation, it looked like Hillary was going to win. You know, right. I was, you know, we were not, I think, commenting on this world because we, we it just didn't exist yet. Tom Parada, was it hard to get back into writing a novel after all of the television? Mrs. Fletcher was written while The Leftovers was being written. So sometimes we, the show would be, the writer's room would be in session for six months, and then I'd go home for a few months, and I'd work explicitly on the book. And I would also I'd go out to L.A. for two weeks in the writer's room, and then I'd come home for a couple weeks, and I would try to work on the book. But then this last year, I had a hard deadline for the book, and the show got called back a little sooner than we expected. So I was writing both together. And they're, they're so different... It was hard only in the sort of physical sense of just I was I was tired, you know, and I'd work five days a week on the show, and then I would try and work all weekend on, on the book. And, and they both ended weirdly at the same time in, in the fall of uh, 2016, and, and I, was, I was exhausted in a way I hadn't been exhausted before. Tom Parada, now you've written Mrs. Fletcher and The Leftovers is Over. Are you working on another TV series? Have you started another novel? So I am talking with HBO about the possibility of doing Mrs. Fletcher as a half-hour series. Sort of tinkering with that right now. I have an idea for a book, but I, I'm going to need some time <laughs> to, to get going on that. Who would play Mrs. Fletcher if you had your wish? Oh, I don't know. You know, it's a losing game. <laughs> well, there are a lot of actresses who could easily play the role, I would think. One of the great things about TV right now is that it is just open to character actors in a way that film often isn't, right? Film wants, you know, beautiful people and they want stars and they want young, perfect bodies. And, and TV has been open to such a um, wide variety of characters. Well, we have a number of actors, including Reese Witherspoon, who have passed the age of 40 and are now in Mrs. Fletcher's age group. Oh, well, I love Reese. <laughs> How was it working with her? That was early on. That yeah. was the movie that made her. When Reese Witherspoon made Election, she had been in college, I think. I think she had been at Stanford, if I'm remembering correctly, and left to, to pursue her full-time acting career. So she, I was teaching college at the time, and, and, you know, so she was the age of my students. And I had seen her maybe in... 
a movie called Freeway that was very good. But she wasn't a star. You know, she was an interesting young actor. And I remember going on set for election and watching her in- inhabit Tracy Flick and just thinking, like, this is extraordinary, what, what she was doing. And, and it was great because it had that feeling of discovery. It would be like going to a bar and hearing a band and later finding out, oh, that's R.E.M. You know, it's like you just felt like people don't know about this, but they're going to know about this. Do you ever think about writing plays? I've never thought about writing a play only because I think screenplays are essentially like plays, but you can do more in terms of setting and movement and all that. I, I love I love theater, but I uh, it just doesn't come naturally to me. And more short stories? Yeah, stories are one of my first loves. But I, I think that I'm not a natural story writer, and part of it goes to what we were talking about before, where I have trouble sticking to a point of view. I, I, I get very interested in the minor characters. It's, it's like every story sort of becomes a little world. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.